I used to have an office in a loft space on West Washington in Chicago. The building was part residential, part business. One day, I was in the lobby waiting for the elevator, and when it arrived and the doors opened, a young guy in sweats and a baseball cap stepped out. He was very pleasant and friendly and so familiar, and he said hello and something in the way he said it. I just felt like we knew each other, but I couldn't place him. I said hello back, but I knew I looked caught off guard, like when you can't recall someone's name and you say, hey, buddy. So he stepped out and I stepped in and I saw him head to the mailboxes. And as I'm going up in the elevator, I'm thinking, God damn it, who the hell was that? I get to my office and one of my business partners is there and I relate this to him and it's bugging the hell out of me. I feel like I was rude to the guy, so I say, I'm going to go back down there, and if he's still there, I'm just going to fess up because otherwise it's going to drive me crazy. So I go back to the elevator, back down to the lobby, and he's just leaving the mailroom and heading back toward me in the elevator. So I stay in, and he gets on with his mail, and I say, hey, I'm sorry, but I know we know each other, and I just can't place it. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and you are, and he says... I'm Paul Conrad, and just as my mind is processing this, he follows it with, I do the weather on the WGN television morning news. And once he says it, it's so obvious to me. I realize we don't know each other, or at least he doesn't know me, but I do know him. I know him in a suit without the baseball cap. I know him from the WGN morning news. I know him from television Paul Conrad is my guest today on the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. You could call him Weatherman Paul Conrad. I think of him more like Broadcaster Paul Conrad. And let me say this, I love broadcasters. News, sports, entertainment, give me a broadcaster. Someone who has that natural ability to create an intimate connection with people on a grand scale of some kind. Someone we trust to come into our homes, our earbuds, our lives, who make you feel like they're part of your family, one of your friends. In my time, it's been people like Johnny Carson, Tom Brokaw, David Letterman, Tom Snyder, Harry Carey. And more recently, it's like everyone on Chicago's WGN Morning News, which I think is one of the last bastions of good old-fashioned live broadcast television anywhere. It's hard to believe that the show's been on for over 20 years now. With its strange, sometimes uneasy mix of news, entertainment, and just plain screwing around, they offer what I think is the freshest take on morning television. By comparison, the big network offerings seem like they're made of plastic, the other local contenders made of wood. I think a big part of their success stems from what appears to be a genuine sense of camaraderie among Conrad, news anchors Larry Potash and Robin Baumgarten, and sportscaster Pat Tomasulo. Even after all these years, it seems like someone has given these guys the keys to the station to do whatever they want in the early morning hours. It's sort of amazing how pure it is and how long they've gotten away with it. Not to get carried away, but given what we all know is a rapidly changing media landscape, it just it seems to me like television is kind of dead. Which may be why I get such a kick out of the WGN morning show. Because it's like no one told them. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. Check one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Check one, two. Well, three. you're obviously a yeah, pro. I, no one counts to ten better than I do. It's just the <laughs> you, gift. You years and years of doing this, you see. So you you're coming. From, you came from work. Yeah. What what time do you finish? 
Uh, I usually, uh, the show ends at 10. There's the 10.30 meeting that I typically don't uh, attend. How? Um, you I, don't attend? The, I don't attend. I used to attend it. What's, a, what's the 10.30 meeting called? Uh, the post-show meeting. Where and we, I would assume that's for people like you. Yeah. To, and you're able to not show up? It's been maybe a year and a half since I've been there. And do you, do you take the, um, do you say, I won't be attending, or do you just not show up? I just don't show up. And what goes on in these meetings? That Bunch you're of nothing, which is why I don't go. It's a typical meeting where they say, hey, what worked on the show today? The room's dead silent. Everyone just wants to leave and get out of there. All right, let's talk about tomorrow. And then they talk about the guests that are going to be on the show tomorrow. 99% of them don't impact me. And uh, they say any ideas. And I haven't had a good idea in years, so I feel like I'm not going to take it. The other thing is the room is too small. It's a room for like 10 people, and there's 30 people in the room. So doors aren't shut. The kind of people are halfway in, halfway out. So you don't even know. You know, who's there and who's not there. If you went in there and said, is Paul in this meeting? 40% of the people would say, yeah, he's in here somewhere. <laughs> Has anything good ever come out of the meeting? No. Uh, there have been some amazing fights, like really mean fights with people crying and tears. Over the 18 years, there have been some, <laughs> some really spectacular ones. But, uh, you know, the last, you know, beyond that, nothing much, much, much good has happened out of there. Hmm. I should invite you to come. If I ever went back, if I go back, I'll invite you. Well, it's funny because um, a few years, some years back, I was writing something that involved a weatherman and uh, local news, and you were nice enough to let me follow you around um, doing the show. And I had an opportunity to shadow you and also another um, weather forecaster in town. Um, I guess I guess it was Brant Miller who yeah. could not have been nicer and um but the nature of your jobs seemed radically different. Um I just first thing I was struck by was the one thing you guys had in common that taking nothing away from because I'm sure there are many fine journalists in town and but the the news anchors were you know to a large extent from what I could gather were were readers and the weather guy had to really sort of be more extemporaneous. Yeah. In some ways, it felt like a way more sort of engaged thing to be doing because you were kind of improvising. Um, it, it just seemed like it allowed for a little bit more um, being ownership. yourself, yeah. too. I think there is a big difference. Like, the ownership of, like, it's my forecast. I've had to take the time to come up with the forecast. I've looked at the charts, so I know what I'm talking about. And then I just have to deliver it where... I'll be honest, our news anchors, pretty much 95% of what they're reading has been written by somebody else, and maybe 40% of the time, the first time they're reading it is as it comes out of their mouths. And so it's easier for me to own the stuff that I've put together than it is for them, because they're just repeating what some intern has written. Well, it was funny, because I remember when I was following Brant Miller, Warner Saunders was uh, one of the anchors, and he was introducing me around, and... Uh, Warner was fixating on something. He was he, he was actually seeking out Brandt. He said, "Brandt, could you take a look at this this road, this right here? How do you say this? I know you live out near here, and it was the Finkston Road, uh, which is spelled P F I. Yeah, I it's guess. a great road too. And he's like, Fink, and he said, it's a terrific road. <laughs> and he said, uh, that's Finkston. He goes, okay, Finkston, Finkston. Yeah. And I thought, wow, a lot of his job 
really is just making sure he says things properly. But otherwise, it's kind of right there in front of him. So I guess that's the other thing I noticed when when I was following a traditional local newscast. Um, There wasn't a whole... There wasn't as much going on. There wasn't as much buzz as I expected. When I was following you, you know, for hours in the morning... You were all over the place. You were out on the patio talking to Moose Scourin about sleep overnight at Comiskey Park, right. and you were talking to some woman about gardening tips, and then you were inside doing the weather report, and you were, and I just thought, I thought if you took a job as a weather guy on any other channel in any other capacity, that you would be bored to tears. Yeah, definitely. And it's like the, it's like the best part of a four-hour newscast is that there's a ton of things to do. It's a lot of time you got to fill. Whereas, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, you got a 22-minute newscast. You get your three minutes, you do it, and you get out of there, and you're done, which some of that does <laughs> sound kind of attractive. These guys are working three minutes, and they're out. But uh, I, I think that is totally the nature of morning news also, is that people are getting ready for work. you got to keep – our audience is turning over constantly, and you got to give them something that they're going to be interested in, hopefully, you know, especially over four to six hours that we have. Those morning shows are a little more than news, I guess. You know, they tend to be, I don't know, the the cool thing about it to me, the thing that I find kind of romantic about the notion of all of it is just that is, is, well, largely that live television vibe. I mean, the feeling that just where it's happening right in the moment like that, is that I mean, there's got to be a certain excitement level to that. Are you are you so over that at this point that it doesn't dawn on you? I mean, that's a lot of time to. Yeah, I guess I just you forget that that's the case. I also have always felt like the most interesting part of a newscast, a typical newscast, is when the teleprompter goes down, uh, and it's in that five seconds that you actually see real people and you see what who they really are right like there's finally something unpredictable that's going on and that's what i do like about live tv is that all kinds of things go wrong and for some reason our station specializes <laughs> having things crap out on us but uh, i do think that the nature of the show kind of the entertainment newsy it's hard to even know how to categorize the thing uh but it does make uh, there's something about being live and the spontaneity of it that you can't pre-produce easily at all. Well, especially when you have that much time to fill. Right. It's not like you can the day before figure out how the next day is going to go. I mean, it's just, I imagine you just you just are constantly on this mode of doing it. Yeah. I, you know, I, we know that we've got the news. We'll have the same five local important news stories that every TV station and radio station in town will give you. And then from there... All right, how else are we going to fill the show? What else is there to do? And sometimes there's not much, which is, God bless the Internet, because there's all kinds of goofy stuff on there. I guess that's the other interesting thing. Given the access to uh, everything on the Internet, Yeah. I mean, the weather is on my phone. Right, it's everywhere. So in a way, it's the easiest thing for me to get. And yet... You know, you're doing it on television. Skilling is still yeah. the major personality that he yeah. is. Um, yeah. uh, where is that going? I mean, somehow or other, news has to find some entertainment value or spontaneity that you can say, you know what? I can get the weather off my phone, but I get weather and maybe I get a, a laugh or I get pissed off or I get something other than just a screen by watching this show. 
you know, especially in a show like yours, it would seem to me that it's got as much to do with spending time with a group of people that you like. Yeah. I mean, you really are, in a sense, keeping people company. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. Um, that seems to be a big part of the job, maybe even more than informing people. It's just, you seem like a fun bunch. Yeah. And I think people kind of associate us with their lives, right? Like their workplace. Yeah, there's a handful of people that we get along. We make fun of management the same way. We pick on people. And, you know, TV news has for years just been this kind of fake, happy talk BS that makes me nauseous, right? And so we are kind of, we're severely the anti-happy talk. We're the kind of the most sarcastic, bitter group of angry employees who don't have the filter. And I think... So how do you get away with that? It's a rating success. And if it was not a rating <laughs> success, the three of us would be out the door, or the five or six of us would be out the door. But for years, we've been able to... I'll never forget, I called management morons on the air for the first time. This was probably 1997 or 98, and I thought, oh, because I, I was authentically angry about something, and I called them morons on the air. And I thought, huh, I don't care how this goes. Well, sure enough, the um, news director had gotten a call saying, hey, we need to do something to penalize Conrad. Either I don't care if you fire him, but we're not going to put up with that anymore. And so the news director calls me in and says, listen, I've been given the freedom to fire you if I need to fire you, um, and I'm not going to fire you, but you can't be saying that kind of stuff on TV. And I said, okay, that's fine. I don't necessarily change my opinion, but I get that I have to respect. <laughs> I still believe you're morons. I believe you, <laughs> and there are three other people that I'd like to tell you are morons. And... I think the only reason that I made it through that, and frankly, the only reason we've gotten away with so much stuff is because the ratings have been good. We've been called, like management, we'll say something on the air that infuriates management. Like, we've gotten called in more than our fair share of times. And ultimately, they wind up saying, so you can't do that anymore. Stop it. And then the next day, we'll talk about it on the air, and it's behind us. But because it's a ratings success, management's like, you know what? It works. There's something in there also about kind of there's this authenticity where we kind of do say what we think. Some of it I, at times over the years has kind of been played out to such a level that it's, it's almost buffoonery. But um, there is something about that authenticity that kind of people are like, yeah, I, I can relate to that. I think my boss is a total moron and they've got me doing this. I just can't believe these guys have the balls to say it on TV because no one does that. And so the, that creates affection as well, I think. And loyalty. Our audience is incredibly loyal. I don't... Who's watching? Uh, well, we own the female demographic of women between the age of 25 and 54. My personal... The women who love me, uh, and this is based on scientific research, but just from what I figured out, I own the demographic of African-American women over the age of 65 and over 285 pounds. When they come down the street, I would put $100 that they want to give me a hug and that we're going to talk. That is my demo. I own them. Thomas Sula has been trying to make headway on that demo, but I own them. Half for years. <laughs> uh, do you get a lot of... Do people seem to consider you approachable? I would think that to some degree, given the nature of what you do in the show, 
that people assume they can. Yeah. I think people assume that, hey, we're in their house every day. I think there's this, and it's really as big of a compliment as you could ask for, that people feel like they have an affinity for you, they know you well enough, that they would feel comfortable saying hi or saying whatever they want to say. And to me, that's like the greatest compliment, that I would rather have people feel like, hey, they are real, authentic, approachable people, and I can ask them to do anything and they won't be offended and i don't mind that at all you don't find it problematic people coming up to you not at all not i'm honored i there are times that it's a pain in the neck but that's so rare uh and i uh, i you know i grew up here in chicago the i i remember seeing tim weigel for the first time and uh, thinking holy crap that's tim weigel i yelled out his name and he gave me a friendly wave and i remember thinking that is like the coolest thing that has ever happened to me. And so here, you know, 30, 40 years later, it's amazing for me to kind of have people want to approach me in that same way. Not that I'm Tim Weigel, but just that fascination with TV news people. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, over the years, people like, well, like Letterman, I guess like Johnny Carson. I'm not sure the more recent crop is the same way, but these are guys that were intensely private people who were on television every day. And I always thought that that, you know, where some people would say, it's so ironic, you know, he's not good and, you know, one-to-one with people, but he's great. In some ways, that sort it always made some sense to me that since you're, you, you are exposed to everybody on a daily basis, that you might, you might have this need for intense privacy outside of that because there's only so much of you that you want to give. Yeah. I mean, given that you're, I mean, you are on for hours, you know, you're not the only one granted, but still you guys are on for hours. How, how do you separate or do you, do you feel the need to, do you, does it, do you relate to that sense of that those guys had of needing to keep a part of you outside? Uh, you know, I think I feel a bigger obligation to really do my family stuff well, right? And I know, like, it gets incredibly complicated now with social media where they would love for us to be tweeting and posting stuff and linking throughout the day. And it's tempting to do that. But once I, like, this was a situation where we had a severe thunderstorm warning. It happened at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I happened to be in a movie theater with my wife, and I thought, oh, no. In theory, I'm supposed to be Facebooking right now and tweeting all this stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, when does when am I off the clock? Because I can do this all day long. I can social media 24-7. You know, people are out there all the time. And so what I've realized is I can't do being a dad well, I personally can't do being a dad well and a husband well if I'm attached to my phone and trying to keep up. Is this the career that you think you were after? Or is it just sort of something that evolved and happened? I think um, it's more than anything something that evolved and happened. I, you know, I didn't have, when I was a kid, I just wanted to be the second baseman for the Cubs, right? Like that's all I was really interested in. Unfortunately, I didn't have the skill set. You know, apparently you have to hit the ball. Uh, but it is something more that I backed into. I kind of grew up in a family that did, we were kind of this performing family. We had this business of 
traveling and singing as this Austrian family singing group. Oh yeah, so tell I, me tell me about that again. What what is the uh, what was the nature of it? Like a, was it literally like a von Trapp family? It had some of that feel. I'm one of seven kids. My dad's an Austrian, was an Austrian dude, and uh, you know he and my mom taught all the kids German and Austrian folk songs. And what was show business your parents' primary thing? Or? No, my dad worked at uh, Caterpillar Tractor for 35 oh, okay. years. Oh, okay, So right. this was a little side thing they do at night, and it started off just as something they enjoyed having their kids singing and then someone asked if we would sing at some picnic and then next thing you know we were spending all our summers traveling and a couple nights a week we'd be singing for the oak park women's club or whatever was there leader hosen in yeah oh yeah a lot of leather full, yeah that's where the old was weather the and leather deal. got going okay. yeah leather full-blown uh the full-blown look huh and uh you know it that you know did you enjoy itself, it I love being with my family, and that's where I develop a lot of my performing skills and being comfortable in front of people. In hindsight, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what my parents were thinking. In some ways, like, how the hell did you raise seven kids and you've got a full-time job? And like, I don't know how they did it, right? Like, it must really have just no been idea. a passion or something. Yeah, something went wrong there. But um, yeah, I, I, I view it as something that was special. Uh, for me in the skill set that it gave me and precious memories of growing up with your brothers and sisters and you know we were performing at beer festivals in Pennsylvania you know so interesting stuff but do you think it kind of built in any kind of desire to get out in front of people or I have an audience yeah. and I, I get think, that kind of yeah I think that kind of gave me that validation that if I performed well then I could get attention and you know, being the fifth of seven kids, that was the best way for me to get my parents' attention was to perform well on stage. And uh, and so that is kind of where it all started. I think that is ultimately where I got into, have, you know, wanting to be an actor and going to acting school and all that other stuff. I mean, WGN, you, you grew up yeah, with grew that. Yeah, grew up here, yeah. So when, I, when you think back on the heritage of that and, yeah. and the fact that in some ways you guys are among the few things that carry the baton for that now, yeah. aren't you? I yeah, mean, it really is weird. Like, we're the show that replaced Bozo, and what's really weird is that the show's been on the air for 20 years now. Wow. And the station's 70-some years old, right? When you start thinking, oh, crap, we're now like a quarter of the whole history of the thing. There's some, like, you can get kind of nostalgic and go, wow, we've been around a long, long time. And there's... WGN to me does have kind of that Chicago magic because I did. I grew up watching the Cubs. I watched the Bozo, Ray Rayner. Those were the foundational experiences with TV that I had growing up. So for me to be on there now is kind of like, huh, this is really crazy. Right? Yeah. Really cool. I can remember meeting a friend of mine worked at WGN after graduating college. And I didn't, I didn't have a job right away. So I was spending a lot of time going to meet him for lunch, but then I would also go into the Phil Donahue show oh, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I, yeah, in fact, I think I asked too many questions on the Donahue show. <laughs> My friend said, you can come again, but you can't yeah. ask another question. Because I think Phil started looking at me like, you this, like this guy thinks he's my co-host. Um, but uh, I also remember meeting Bob Bell. And he was taking pictures with the kids after the Bozo show. He and 
Ray Brown, yeah, who was Roy co- Brown, Roy Brown, who yeah. was Cookie the Clown, and they were making you know remarks like, "Hey, there's a cute one, yeah," and the kid's not bad either. You know, right. there's a lot of that right. going on. Right. And then after everybody left, my friend went to introduce me to Bob Bell, who, honest to God, was like you know growing up for me that was a huge right. thing. And he took off his glove to shake my hand and kind of came out of the bozo voice into his regular voice, you know, like halfway through, which was sort of mind blowing for me. Yeah. (laughs) But I, I, you know, it it doesn't seem like there's as much of that for all that's out there right now. There doesn't seem like there's as much of that kind of stuff that makes, you know, I mean, local television, not a whole lot of it really. There's virtually none. I have this story of, I was going to, I was doing something with the Bozo Show, and this is the days of Joey Dioria. This is probably 1997 or so, and I'm at the station, and they're like, hey, yeah, um, come on down to the makeup room, and uh, we'll talk, and we'll have this conversation. So the conversation starts off with Joey, and I'm talking with him, but he's putting Bozo on as we're talking, right? And so at some point, he's got the collar on, he's got all his makeup on, but he's still standing there in his boxer shorts and a T-shirt. And I'm sitting there going, this is really, really different than I ever envisioned being Bozo in his underpants and just that transformation of, all right, now I'm going to start calling him Bozo because he's no longer Joey. <laughs> um. Tell us about the dark underbelly of Tom Skilling. Ooh, yeah. So I think Tom is a genius, right? Like, I really do think that the guy is off the charts in... I've often thought maybe he's a savantish because he can... One day, it rained 3.26 inches of rain in an hour. And he says, Paul, how much was that? And I go, 3.26. And in his head, he had mathematically calculated like the millions of gallons of water that had fallen in Cook County per second, right? Like it's some, it's an incredibly long number that would take me a week to figure out the formula to do it and another week to do the math on it, but he can do it in his head. And he has amazing recall. Like he can look at a satellite that's looping, go, I remember that storm, that's July 19th, 1987. Our high that day was 84. Like he can do that in an amazing way. That is his greatest strength along with his like I don't think there's anybody who knows more about weather with the amount of passion that he does like the guy is a genius the downside on him he's a slob he is a freaking slob and I share parts of the office with him I'm finding bowls of chili under maps you know that are from 2006 And uh, he just, he's like a human tornado he comes in there and his filing system is totally out of control but he knows where everything is, and the guy is just a good-hearted man. Like, you couldn't ask for a nicer guy. I don't see him that often because our schedules are different, but he's always just a good dude. He is hes really smart, and he's a great performer. He's a great educator, but I'll say this. This, to me, was really surprising. So maybe I'm three years into the job, and I happen to be around for the noon show, and it was back when we had this system that would crap out on us and he gets out there on the air and he can't get the weather computer to advance and he's hung out to dry and you know they're scheduling him for you know seven minutes of weather at that time he just couldn't get the whole thing through he did a great job 90 percent of people probably wouldn't notice but he comes back into the weather office and he says i saw my whole career flash in front of my eyes here they could let me go over something like this this is unbelievable i'm like 
Tom, you're Tom Skilling. You could, you could take a dump on the set, and no one's going to be. You're, you got a job forever. You're like the best. But he's got this humility about him that is so impressive. That and like the phone rings in the weather office, he answers it every time. Every time. I never answer the phone, typically because I'm afraid either my mom or sister's calling. But he will call, or anyone calls, he picks it up, says, this is Tom, and he'll talk to people literally for hours. He was helping some seventh-grade kid <laughs> doing science homework, and I'm like, God, this guy really is just a good-hearted, kind, happy soul. What I don't think you get in seeing him is really how funny he is and how much fun he has. He really is a funny guy. And one of my favorite experiences with him, again, this is years back, I, we were doing a story on the winds out at Wrigley Field. And I said, would you come out here and let's, you know, let me just interview you out here at Wrigley and I'll hit you some fly balls and let's just see how that goes. So I get skilling, I give him a glove, and I send him out into center field. And I am hitting balls out to him. And I'm thinking, this is, this is just, I, I can't wait to see how he does. The guy was fleet of foot and hardly missed anything. I'm thinking, this is not the guy who I'm thinking is going to be shagging balls out of center field. And he got him. Like, he had some athleticism. Really? Yeah. I was totally taken back by it because I'm thinking, he's not going to be able to pull this off. And he did. He had a little athleticism to him. I was watching some stuff in preparation for seeing you. And one thing in particular that just tickled me because it, really uh, made you uncomfortable was some woman who was showing, there was some sort of pole dancing competition uh, <laughs> that was coming through town, yes, apparently. Yes. And and she was demonstrating yeah. her uh, ability to dance uh, on um, a pole. Yeah, and she was good. If she she was good. I mean, and frankly, she was, you know, dressed in a manner that it wasn't like too, like, whoa, this is ridiculous. But she was still dancing on a pole. Right. And, um, and but the best part of it, and I do recommend anybody who's listening to this to check that out, just out on YouTube. <laughs> There's, there, you're on the stage. It's, it's dark in, in that, except for that part there that's lit. And, and you and Larry are sitting in a couple of chairs, like seem like folding chairs, just <laughs> sitting there watching this. And Larry in particular seems to be, he seems to be the guy that if you were at a club, he'd be the one going, come on, we're yeah. going in. And you'd be the one going, nah, can't, let's just go get a Euro sandwich. <laughs> not sure we should be doing this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it played that way. And then there was a little bit of silence, as I recall. And at one point you just sort of head down just said some muttered into the microphone it just doesn't seem right <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that right where there is this balance right between there's stuff that's incredibly funny or inappropriate right and I am always stuck with the reality that I know my mom is watching every morning, and I am probably going to hear from her at some point, right? So there's, I've always got this conscience about me where I'm like, all right, I really can't enjoy this because, like, my wife doesn't even watch the show. I'm more worried right now about my mom <laughs> chewing me out. Well, th th toward that end, do you ever worry about you know, it's sort of the, you know, people dropping the F-bomb on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would be a little concerned that something might come out of my mouth. Yeah. Or also just as broadcasters, because there's been plenty of, you know, kind of the Paula Deen kind of right. thing where, I mean, where 
she may have not even thought twice about you, what she was saying and then come to realize later or even just somebody who very innocently lets something slip. Yeah. I guess my point is you're exposed on live television yeah. every day. Yeah. How much of a concern is that? It's a huge concern, and um, especially because you can't get it back, right? Like, there's no way to get it back. So I, I know all of us are, and I, I think we also are often, or many of us are kind of quick-witted, right? So sometimes you can jump out there with something, and you're over, and you're like, oh, shoot, I got to wind my way back from this as best as I can. But I think for the most part, we've had pretty good success in getting really close to that line. I know in the last six months, in a moment of frustration, I called Larry and Robin Jagoffs, um, which I didn't, uh, you know... Yeah, what's the what's the verdict I, on well, Jagoff? I, I got spoken to, and I was asked to apologize through social media. And I'm kind of like, yeah, uh, what is Jag... Like, is Jagoff... Where is that in the vernacular of not being appropriate? Because I don't even know what it means, but I called kids... When I was in seventh grade, I'd call somebody Jagoff. But I don't know today whether that means something different or what. I don't, like, I'm just... like I, I. So finally, I said to the news director, I said, listen, I don't have any problem apologizing. I'll po- post it on my Facebook page. It's, I know I can come up with better language than that, even though I don't know what it really means. And it's done, which is fair. Right, right. But it is, that's one of those things where, and frankly, YouTube is filled with local newscasters making buffoons out of themselves. Um, and so I think we've, like when we screw up, we just own it. We don't try to act like it didn't happen. And I think that gives us a lot more mercy and grace. And people kind of, I don't think the average viewer of our show goes, ah, these should, guys should really be at a higher standard. They kind of get who we are. Is there anything else you want to do, or are you doing what you want to do? I think do? I'm doing what I want to do. There's really nothing else. That's, that, I mean, that's uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, frankly. Well, what you're doing allows you to do. Yeah, I kind of feel like I'm doing what I love, right, and what is in my wheelhouse of things that I get satisfaction out of, and I'm rewarded handsomely for it. It's a great schedule for a guy who's trying to balance career and family because I'm home late morning and I've got the rest of the day with my kids. So that part's great. I'm up early and I'm up 3.15 in the morning and um, but, you know, I've got full days and I'm out of the office by 10.30. Sounds sweet. Yeah, it is sweet and I'm enjoying it. Well, Paul, this was a pleasure for me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Always good to be with you, Ron. A few weeks back, the chief executive of Playboy magazine announced that they would no longer be publishing pictures of nude women. Citing the rampant availability of pornography on the Internet, CEO Scott Flanders was quoted as saying, You're now one click away from every sex act imaginable for free. And so it's just passe at this juncture. In a Hog Butcher Radio Hour exclusive, Two former playmates offer their views on this seismic shift in the culture of adult erotica. I'll read mine first? Please. Uh, Okay. I'm Debbie Fontell, and as most of you know, I was Playmate of the Year 1978, mostly due to my suppleness and my classical areola. 
The Playboy situation is a real shock and a real disappointment to any body-loving person who prefers tasteful nudity instead of skanky raunch. The Playboy pictures were always elegant, sophisticated vaginas, and intelligent and cultured breasts. <sighs> I found out about this situation with taking out the nudies uh, when I was at the Macy's Columbus Day sale trying on a tastefully see-through dress that I wanted to wear in my grandbaby's wedding. And my daughter came in and said, Mom, did you see this? Playboy's dropping the beautifully styled and appropriate nudes. It was like I got kicked in the area just south of my classy and contemporary breasts. I guess the situation is subscribership is decreasing because people can get porn on the internet now for free. I mean, why pay? Well, actually, I don't even know what the price is now. I know. Back in the 70s, it was like 65 cents. So why pay $3? for a beautiful classy nude in a business suit with a backstory of her panties fell off in the middle of a presentation to all the shareholders. Why pay for that when you can see a woman having sex with a unicorn horn on top of a slip and slide with a horse playing a xylophone in the background for free? That's what you're seeing now on the internet. Without these tasteful and sophisticated nudes, we will be raising our nude, curious children on feral beaver shots and garden hose sex. That's just a warning. It's true, though. In my time, yes, I was nude a lot, but I was never a skanky hoe about it. Yes, I allowed my vagina to be shown, but it was always telling a greater intellectually titillating story. Like one shoot I did, I was picking apples and I had no panties on because as it was explained to me, I had just met a young immigrant boy who needed to barter my panties for his freedom. Of course, the picture was of my charming and classy ass up on a ladder with just a whisper of the areola that I'd become famous for. But if you looked at the picture long enough without masturbating, I think you could glean the story about the immigrant also. He was not in it, but I think that you just would get that feeling from it. I got it. Now, the nudes in Playboy, compared to the nudes on the internet today, are like high, treat, high tea at a fancy hotel, compared to hot dogs at 7-Eleven, the ones that they make with the rolly tubes that heat them up. It's a sad day when our youth are denied the pleasure of an artistically styled nude depicted as a topless associate law professor specializing in torts and are instead forced to look at a woman with a dildo on the end of a drill. They call that a drildo, I guess, as well. Oh. I saw that. It's a sad day for America and for every mattress that will never hide another Playboy again. That was so good. Thanks. Okay. So I'll go ahead. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> um, again, I'm Monique St. Vincent, Miss November 1978. She's like my little baby bird. <laughs> That's true. We were at the mansion together. Mm -hmm. I was um, Playmate of the Year in 1979 right after Deborah. Um, Debbie. <laughs> my turn-ons are the color blue and snow, and my turn-offs are misunderstandings and poor performance in outdoor recreational sports. Okay, um, 
This is just what I wrote. <laughs> Guys, we get it if they're taking out nudes, if they want to go non-nude. If the nude is just too much now, we get it, guys. You want to be Maxim or something and have your kids say, Playboy, I heard of Playboy, and then buy it. I get it. But I just want to say, when I was Miss November, you should know it was one of my highlight experiences, okay? Here I am, this trained psychiatric nurse, which is not a walk in the park, FYI, not at all. Then um, I came to America where these boobs weren't normal. I'm sorry, breasts. Hef insisted I say breasts. Once I said, Hef, am I all clam and titties? Because that's what someone said to me once. And well, what can I say? I'm German and I get angst. And Hef, see, this is what's sad. I tangented here. I had my pictorial and Roland and Michael, they're who did the shoot. They're really nice. They were so good. Really, Roland was addicted to cleansing soaps and hash. He's dead now, but he was so much fun. Anyway, they were very artistic. They were. Anyway, they said, just bend over this railing, and we'll have the wind blow open your robe, and then we can see your tuchus. I said, what's that? Do you mean you want a bunch of clam? And they said, no. Then they kind of felt bad about themselves. I mean, I had to apologize to them for saying that. Then Hef said, we're not about T and C, like you said. And I was like, oh, clams and titties? And he said, no. First, we want you to be beautiful. And see, that's what you're giving up because now, sure, there are no nudes in Playboy and no more Playboy nudes. You can Google me. You can see what it was like. I never had to have somebody take me into a closet, jam a hose in my anus, and turn me into a water fountain while I had bad hair. No way. Did I lose my modeling contract for those pictures? Yes, I did. I did. And you know what? That's the America you're giving up. I'd like to see her jumblies, you say to a nice German psychiatric nurse that's helping you out. And back then, it would be like, okay, here are jumblies and a nice negligee. We could even say things like jumblies, but now that's too easy. Now the fantasies are what? What even are they? Double teamed by horses while your skin falls off. That, that's, what's, that's, even, that's impossible. Now, <clears throat> I get that Playboy is dead and that's sad. And think of those girls, those nice psychiatric nurses, turn models of today. Will they know what it's like when someone says, Monique, can we turn down the air for you and maybe dust a little, dust you a little more? And you can say yes. And I mean, who doesn't want to be naked with perfect hair and nice makeup? Who doesn't want that? I don't know. Me neither. Is it unreal in a lot of ways? Of course, of course it is. But you're going to miss me and all the girls like me. When you see your psychiatric nurse again, your imagination is going to go haywire. And I don't think it'll go, what if she was crouching on snow and peeking out of her turtleneck? You're just dragging yourself into a world of titties and clams. So from all the playmites, a lot of whom are in rehab or dead, that's fine. From all of us, sayonara, suckers, sayonara. I should say that the views of Debbie Fontel and Monique St. Vincent are not necessarily the views of the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. I mean, they might be. I, I might just have to go back and listen to them one more time. And I should also say that when they're not being outspoken former playmates, they are Sue Salvi and Megan Kelly, formerly of the sketch comedy group Brick, currently Hog Butcher Radio Hour players, and also authors of the book Someday a Bird Will Poop on You available at Amazon, and even better, at some bookstores if you can find one. 
I'd like to once again thank the wonderful Paul Conrad for being my guest today. And before we close it out, just a song before I go. This is Oak Park's Jody Walker off her delightful 2015 record, Broken Bubble, a track that always makes me smile. This is Ironic Mustache. Until next time. Mustache in Italian, or more precisely, it's the feminine of mustaches.